three experts, let's say, three experts, a sheet of paper with some ink on it, uh, and I gave it to, first, I gave that sheet of paper to a chemist. Now, what a chemist would be able to do is the chemist would come back and tell me lots about that sheet of paper, about the, the wood chemical compound that made up the paper. Uh, the, the, the chemist would be able to tell me about the, the different uh, solvents and pigments and drying agents that were all part of the ink, uh, and it would all be very interesting. Um, but then imagine I gave the same um, piece of paper to a physicist, And the physicist could tell me something about the mass and the density. And perhaps it was even a very keen physicist and then went on to tell us, or tell me about the the building blocks that made up this piece of paper, the different atoms and molecules and protons and electrons and quarks and all those various interesting things. You would have lots of information about the piece of paper. It would all be accurate, I expect, if they're experts in their field, accurate information. But we all recognize it's hardly adequate, is it? It's not adequate information. What you might need is the third expert, the third expert, Matt, let's say. Matt, who took a piece of paper and with a pen wrote a letter to Mary, perhaps appropriately this morning, asking her to marry him. Isn't that that almost the more crucial question to to know the answer to? Who wrote it and why did they write it? Get the idea? Um, You see, science is a wonderful thing. We've got a picture of a microscope there. Science is a wonderful thing. It can tell us fantastic information about this world. It can give us all sorts of information about how this world physically works. It gives lots of physical explanations. But actually, what it cannot do, what science cannot do, is it cannot give you personal explanations about the world that we live in. It can't answer the crucial who and why questions. Brilliant at the how questions, giving answers to those, but it's insufficient, unqualified, to give answers to the the who uh, and the why questions. And I think we all recognize that, don't we? Let me give you another, this is a silly example, but it's the best I could come up with. Uh, imagine this morning I was to come in with a black eye. Come in with a black eye. Now, knowing you lot, there's at least one or two people who would say, what happened to you? Okay, what happened to you? Well, I could answer that question. Yes, my eye collided with an object of greater density than itself, uh, and that caused the, the capillaries underneath the, the, the dermis there to be, uh, to, to be burst. And what you're seeing in the black eye is the flow of extra blood to the area, bringing additional oxygen for cell repair. Okay? That's an answer. That's an answer, isn't it? But we all recognize that's not the real question you're asking, is it? It's not the real question. You're, you're, you're not really interested in the physical explanation. You want the personal one. Who did I annoy <laughs> that they hit me uh, to give me a black eye? That's what you really want to know, isn't it? You want the personal who and the why. Uh, and we recognize that, that these explanations, the physical explanation and the personal explanation, are not contradictory explanations for the world that we live in. They just work at different levels. They work at different levels. And what we 
what I want to argue, and in fact, we all know that. You don't have books in Eason's and in Waterstone's. The love delusion, the love delusion, why hormones disprove the existence of love, right? You don't, you don't get a book like that. Um, because we all know that the sensation we feel, love, uh, we describe it as love, as a personal explanation, hormones as a physical one. They're not necessarily contradictory, they're complementary. And I want to argue right at the very beginning, without getting lost in all the detail, uh, I want to argue that science and the Bible's explanation of the beginning of the world work like that. They are complementary explanations. One is a physical one, physical explanation, and one is a personal explanation. And where physics and, and cosmology and science has to stop, the Bible speaks, telling us the who and the why. Uh, and so over these next few weeks, what I propose we're going to do is we're going to camp out in Genesis 1 and 2. And we're going to see what God has to say to the answers to these big, crucial questions. Who are we? Why are we here? Is there a God out there? A question science is inequipped to answer. We're going to see what the Bible has to say, what God has to say to us uh, about all of those things. So we're going to consider this morning, who made the world? Who made the world? What's he like? Uh, next week, we're going to consider what does it mean to be a human being. We're going to consider what God's design is for the planet. We're going to consider what God's design is for gender. We're going to consider what God's design is for sex and marriage. And then lastly, what God's design is for work. All as we see God's perfect design been explained for us here uh, at the beginning uh, of Genesis 1 and 2. But before we dive into the details, before we just get lost in Genesis 1... A word of caution, a word of caution. You will be frustrated. You will be disappointed if you try to read Genesis 1 as a scientific textbook. You will be disappointed. That's not what it is. Um, and so if you come to Genesis chapter 1 and your f- first questions you want to ask are, when did this happen? And what mechanism precisely did God use to do it, to create the world, you will be disappointed. Because I I think you can make infer some things, don't get me wrong, you can infer some things, but the focus of this chapter is to tell you who did it, who did it, and give you the beginning of the answer, why. And so what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to consider who made, created the world, who created the world, and what's he like? Three, three truths for us this morning. First, uh, we see that God is eternal. Second, we see God is creator. And third, we see that uh, God is personal. And I want to take the, I'm probably going to try to do too much this morning, forgive me, at the beginning. Uh, I want us to see that actually when you understand those things about God, it actually makes better sense of what we scientifically currently understand and observe in the world. God's surprise, surprise, I want to argue, God's word really does make sense of God's world. Okay, so for each one of those ideas of God, we're going to see that it makes sense of the world that we see. 
Okay, let's dive in. Genesis chapter 1, and the first thing that we see is that God is eternal. God is eternal. The Bible opens with those dramatic words that most of you know, certainly from the mumbling that happened a few minutes ago. Most of you know them, even if you weren't brave enough to shout them out. In the beginning, God. It's a dramatic way to begin uh, the Bible story. But I want you to see that... According to the author, who I believe is at least the the core essence of the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. That's what Jesus said and believed, and I have no reason to doubt him. So uh, we take it this is uh, what Moses had to say. Uh, But notice what Moses doesn't do at the beginning of the Bible. He does not begin by trying to prove to you there is a God. He simply states that at the beginning of all things, God was already there. He just states it as a fact. He doesn't even try to prove it. Um, Because that would be a bit like uh, opening a mathematics textbook and on page one reading a big long proof for why one plus one must equal two. No, that's just assumed. Uh, It's a bit like opening a history book and on the first page the the historian tries to prove to you that there is such a thing as the past. No, those things should be so obvious that you can just assume them and move on. Uh, In the same way, according to the writer, according to Moses here, to him, it is so obvious from the world around him that God has always been and is the creator that he can just assume it. Now, that is precisely the opposite of what most people around you who are not followers of Jesus uh, believe. They believe exactly the opposite to that. We should begin doubting there is a God, and then you need to prove it to me. And so if you, I'm, I'm sure lots of you have had the, the conversation that's run something like this, where you've said, I, I believe in God, and someone says, how can you believe in God? Can you prove it? Can you prove it scientifically that there is a God? But the problem with that objection, the problem with that argument, is that we believe all sorts of things that you cannot prove uh, using the scientific method of observation and experiment. We believe all sorts of things, every one of us. And so I cannot prove to you there is no experiment that can be performed in a white coat with a Bunsen burner and a microscope that proves that child abuse is wrong. And yet it's reasonable, rational, and right to believe it's wrong. You cannot prove that sunsets are beautiful. Can't prove that. Not using the scientific method. And yet it's reasonable and rational and right to just believe that, accept that, and enjoy that. You get the idea? What we've got to do when we come to these bigger questions is we've got to say, what makes the best sense of the world that we observe around us? What makes the best sense of the world we observe around us? Um, is, it, uh, is it best to believe that at the very beginning there was an, a, a, just a, a very high concentrated gas, or was there a God? Which makes most sense of the world? Uh, well, according to Moses, he would say that it makes complete sense to believe that before all things was an infinite, eternal creator God 
who caused all things uh, to come into existence. God is eternal. He has always been. And he is powerful. You see, everyone has a problem, no matter who you are, no matter you're a hardened, hardcore atheist or a passionate believer uh, in, in there being a higher being. Um, everyone has a problem of something from nothing. No matter who you are, you've got a problem there. Um, I've actually had a conversation with multiple atheist friends and they would laugh at me and at us. For most of us here would be self-identify as Christians and followers of Jesus. Most, uh, they would scorn us for believing in the virgin birth. But I, I take sort of perverse delight in kind of pointing out that they, however, believe in the virgin birth of the cosmos. Something just popped into existence from nothing, from nothing, uncaused by any external force, with no design. You see, that's a problem. Uh, I've, I came across this quote by uh, Bill Bryson. Uh, actually, I can't see where it starts. Um, okay, so Bill, just to give you a bit of a context, Bill is at the very beginning of his book, The, the Short History of Nearly Everything. He begins by talking about the Big Bang. And he begins by talking about the point, the point from which all of the universe exploded into being. And by the way, scientists uh, would believe that given the expansion of the universe, they believe it must have started from a single point, uh, usually about 13.7 billion years ago. That's probably the, the consensus of scientists. But he's speaking about the point from which the universe exploded into being and he says we sometimes mistakenly think of that point as a bit like a pregnant dot hanging in space and then he goes on to say this but there is no space no darkness the singularity or this dot from which everything else explodes into being the singularity has no around around it there is no space for it to occupy no place for it to be we can't even ask how long it's been there, whether it's just lately popped into being like a good idea or whether it's been there forever, quietly awaiting the right moment. Time doesn't exist. There is no past for it to emerge from. And so from nothing, our universe begins. And he simply keeps going as if that's not a problem. That's a problem. From nothing, nowhere, for no with no outside influence and no cause, with no design and no creator, everything exploded into being. That is the, that's the atheist story. That is the atheist story. Now, uh, again, I think that that claim that out of nothing, with no outside influence, for no reason and no design, everything exploded into being is so hard to defend that I just don't have the faith to go there. I just don't have the faith to believe that. However, if there is an infinite, eternal, all-powerful God, the beginning of the universe isn't a problem. It isn't a problem. If God is eternal, outside of space and time, then there is no who made God question to answer. He's always been there. He's always been there. 
And if he, he is all-powerful, then he can create a universe whenever he chooses to do it. And so the question is, which, which problem do you want to have? An eternal, infinite God who caused and is the source of the universe or a gas that just exploded into being for no reason, for no cause, with no outside influence. I think the Bible's story makes sense of the world that we see. God is eternal. God is eternal. Second big idea we see in this passage in the beginning, God was already there, but then second, God is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, the Hebrew word for create that we find here in uh, translated create uh, in Genesis 1 is a word that's used throughout the Bible, but it's only ever used to describe the action of God. Only God creates. Human beings, we make stuff, but we don't create. And we see here at the very beginning, God created everything out of nothing. You see, when we make stuff, if you bake a cake, or you construct an Ikea bookcase, or you compose a bit of music, or you paint a beautiful picture, all that we're doing really is rearranging the stuff that's already there, that we've already been given. We make stuff. But that is not true for God, according to the Bible. He created the heavens and the earth. He made everything by his powerful word. He caused it to come into existence. We see uh, Genesis 1. We have God's initial act. 1 verse 1, God's initial act of creation. He speaks matter, stuff into being in verse 1. Uh, and then in verse 2, we read that the stuff that he has made is then formless and empty. It has no shape and it has no inhabitants. And then in the six days that follow, we see God fixing both of those things. He forms the world. He spends three days forming the world and then another three days filling what he has formed. And that is the very careful structure uh, of this chapter. Um, I think we can see it that uh, there's a table that comes up next. Three days forming, three days filling what he's formed. And then there's a correspondence uh, between uh, those different days. We'll come to that in a second. Uh, just before we dive in, it is worth saying, it is worth saying that Christians, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians disagree on how to read this chapter. Many believe that we should read this as a literal chronological account of how God did it. Others would argue that because of the literary structure, uh, because of some clues within the text itself, if you want to ask me about those, I'm happy to chat with you after. Uh, there's some clues within the text that we're meant to read this more on the poetry side of things than a chronological history side of things. But wherever you stand on that issue, wherever you stand on that issue, uh, let's not get lost. Let's not get bogged down. Let's not miss the big point. The big point is that God alone 
is the designer and the creator of all things. God alone is the designer and the creator of all things. And so on day one, we're told that he creates light and he separates that from the darkness. And then that corresponds to day four, where he fills the light or the day with the sun. And then he fills the darkness or the night with the sun, the moon, and the stars. This is this brilliant throwaway line. And he also made some stars. You know, it's the, it's the greatest throwaway line of all history, uh, in all of literature, in fact. Uh, because in our galaxy alone, the Milky Way, there's 100,000 million, just try to begin to compute that number, 100,000 million stars like our sun. That's in our Milky Way alone. And then we believe, according to cosmologists, there's at least 100,000 million galaxies, right? So if you took all the stars in the universe and you divvied them up between the different, every individual living on this planet, each one of us would have two and a half trillion stars. The numbers are just so vast, you just can't begin to, to comprehend them, and yet, God made the stars. He made the stars. Easy. Day two, we read that God separates the, the, he creates the sky and separates it from the water. And then on day five, he fills those things. He fills the, the water with all the sea creatures, and he fills the sky with all the birds. Day three, he separates, he creates the land and separates it from the water. And then on day six, he fills this fertile land with all the animals that creep and crawl and walk along the earth. And finally, and we'll come to this next week, the, the pinnacle of his creation, uh, he created mankind in his own image. We'll come to that next week. And so the point of this structure is really clear. God alone is the creator. He, made, he designed and he made everything by his powerful word out of nothing with no help from anybody. That's the point. So God made this entire universe in all its vastness, in all its complexity, in all its beauty, in all its order. God alone is responsible and should, deserves the honor for it. He is the one who made this world. It is his masterpiece. And again, I want to argue that because the Bible teaches God is the creator, that actually makes the best sense of what we observe in the world around us. Uh, advances in, uh, in physics and in cosmology, uh, the study of the stars in the universe, uh, have shown and helped scientists to recognize that this universe is so finely tuned, it's so perfect, that without it being as perfect as it is, life wouldn't even be possible. Again, here's a quote from uh, an eminent scientist, uh, Francis Collins. Francis Collins was uh, the, the director of the Genome Project, mapping the human genome. Uh, he was then the scientific advisor to the Obama administration. Let's just say here's a guy who knows more about science than you and I will ever know. In fact, he'll forget more about science than you and I will ever know. Okay. 
And he says this, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants. And then he goes on to label them, the force of gravity, and there's various atomic forces that have precise values. Any one of those constants, sorry, if any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. He's saying there's 15 numbers, physical forces in this world that have to be exactly what they are to a million parts in a million. Um, And uh, one, um, yet, yet, the atheist story is that it just happened to work out that way. It just happened by chance and undirected impersonal forces, chance and time. It just, just so happened that they were all precisely what they are for this universe to exist. Uh, One physicist, uh, an Australian uh, science writer called Paul Davis, uh, uses the illustration. It's a bit like what, what the atheist story is asking us to believe, that even for one of those numbers, one of those physical forces to be just as it is, by chance, well, what you're talking is the same odds as throwing a dart at a target an inch wide at the other side of the visible universe, 600 million light years away, and hitting your target. That's the sort of odds for even one of those numbers to be just as it is. But we're talking 15 of those. You've got to do that 15 times then. I just think the statistics are so overwhelming, so staggering that actually the atheist story is so improbable. It's possible. can't prove it's impossible, but it's so improbable that I just do not have the faith to believe that. I don't have the faith to believe that. However, if the Bible story is true and there is a personal God who created this universe for the very purpose that it would be the home of all life, then seeing this finely tuned universe is exactly what you would expect, is it not? It's exactly what you would expect. It is the best explanation for the world that we observe around us. God is the creator. God is eternal. Um, One quote from Douglas Adams, Douglas Adams who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, which is very funny, um, and a very prominent atheist, he famously wrote this. um, Isn't it enough to believe the garden is beautiful without having to believe there are fairies at the bottom of it? And I want to say to Douglas Adams, when I look at a beautiful, well-ordered garden, that doesn't make me believe in fairies but it does incline me to believe in gardeners, doesn't it? I think what we see in the world around makes sense of the Bible's story. God's word explains God's word. Sorry, God's word explains God's world. 
Lastly, and very briefly, God is personal. God is personal. God is eternal. God is creator. God is personal. Um, <clears throat> the words, and God said, let there be, and it was so, uh, or, or a close equivalent to those words, appears at the beginning of every one of the six creative days. And so how did God make the world? Well, we can't say too much about the mechanics, but we can say he made the world by speaking it into existence. And that is the action of a person. That is the action of a person. Persons are those who speak. So Moses, the writer, couldn't be clearer. What we are talking about as the cause for the, for the universe is not an impersonal force or a gas. It's a personal God. That's the best explanation for this world, a personal God. Now, I don't know if you've ever played hide-and-seek with small children. You've got to get the rules laid down very clearly first, by the way, just if you're doing that. But, uh, but we had the opportunity to play hide-and-seek this summer with a couple of our nieces, one of whom was called Lily. Um, and so, you know, you, you close your eyes and you count and they go off and hide. Uh, and then you go and try to find them. It's not a very difficult game as an adult, to be honest. <laughs> and so you walk into the room and you see the little feet sticking out from under the curtain, okay? And you say, uh, I wonder, is Lily under the bed? No. <laughs> Giggle from behind the curtain, okay? Oh, I wonder, is Lily uh, in the wardrobe? No. Giggle from behind the curtain. You get the idea? Kids are usually not very good at playing hide-and-seek. Why? Because they can't stay quiet. Can't stay quiet. If you want, to be, you want to remain hidden and not have a relationship and stay away from someone, you can't be speaking. You can't be speaking. And yet what do we find at the very beginning of the Bible story? We have a God who speaks. Contrary to what popular belief, he's not playing hide-and-seek. He's not trying to hide from us. He has spoken. He has spoken and has made human beings for a relationship with him. We are made for relationship. And again, lastly, I think that does explain what we see in our world today. This personal, moral dimension to life on this planet. Unlike the animal world, humans... uh, are self-conscious. We're self-conscious. Animals, most, the vast, vast majority of animals don't recognize their own reflection. They're, just not, they're not self-conscious. They're not self-reflective in that way. Humans are unique in the sense that we have a self-consciousness and a conscience. Um, Humans are self-conscious. We ask the big questions, don't we? Uh, let's put up the little the picture. Uh, eat, survive, reproduce. Eat, survive, reproduce. Eat, survive, reproduce. Why am I here? Do you see the different kind of things running through a human brain as opposed to a brain in the animal world? Issues of religion. Why are we here? Is there a higher power? What happens when we die? Um, those big philosophical questions, they are uniquely the questions of human beings. They are uniquely. We are self-conscious about ourselves. 
And that is very, very, very difficult to explain from a purely evolutionary point of view. The second thing I think is very difficult to explain is the issue of conscience. Conscience. We have an Im- each one of us has an inbuilt sense of what is good and what is evil. And so we have an inbuilt sense of justice. And so when we see animals kill animals in the Serengeti plain, and you, you, know, you hear you know, beautiful camera work and David Attenborough you know, talking over it, at the end of the day you just go away and go, animals kill animals, that's what animals do. But when you turn on the news and you hear someone uh, with multiple automatic weapons walks into a school and indiscriminately starts blowing away uh, teachers and pupils alike, you do not say, you do not say, humans kill humans, that's what humans do, Uh, the fittest have survived. No, you feel if if there's any spark of humanity in you at all, we feel outrage at that. Outrage. There is a moral dimension woven into human life. That is very difficult to explain. That sense of right and wrong and conscience is very difficult to explain, especially when you remember that there are things that we do when we know we've done something that is immoral. We feel shame and guilt. Can't avoid it even when that thing that you've done might increase your chances of survival and reproduction. Conscience is incredibly difficult to explain on purely evolutionary terms. And I want to argue, well, of course it is. (laughs) Of course it is. Because we are more than just selfish survivors. We are more than just DNA-reproducing machines. We are more than just naked animals. We are built for relationship with a good God. And so self-consciousness and conscience make total sense if that is who God is and the way that he has made us. We are built for a relationship with him. How are we to respond to all this? It feels, us all feels, I'm sorry if this all feels like a bit of a lecture uh, or a biblical facts plus a bit of apologetics, I'm sorry, but how should we go away from, what should be our response to Genesis chapter 1? What do you want to, what I want you to feel as you walk out the door uh, to all of this? Two things. Number one, we need to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. We need to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. You see, every pleasure you have tasted Every beautiful scene that you have marveled at, every personal relationship that you've enjoyed has been created by God and given to you. Um, so right from, this is a person, obviously you're, we're getting a little insight into my character here, from the, just the perfect way the milk sits on the top of that perfectly poured cappuccino, right? From the beautiful uh, scenes in the Mourn Mountains to the perfect guitar riff uh, on some of my favorite music, we are to receive all of those things with great gratitude. God has designed milk and rocks and 
metal guitar strings to have just exactly the properties that they have for us to get the pleasure out of them that we do. Here's a quote for you. Uh, He always looks grumpy. I don't know why. Uh, G.K. Chesterton. I I try to find a smiley face, but he doesn't have any pictures of him with smiley faces. But uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote wrote this. uh, You say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera. And grace before the play and the pantomime. And grace... um, Oh, sorry, I've I've scribbled over that. Grace before I opened the book. Uh, And grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing. And grace before I dip the pen in the ink. Everything is a gift from God. Here's a challenge for you. Here's a challenge for you, right? Uh, Sam and I were, Sam, our youth worker, and I were talking about what could we get you to do in response to this. And we came up with replace your grace, okay? Replace your grace. We often say grace before meals. How about for one week, as you sit down with your family, uh, you replace your grace. Don't just say thanks for the food. Each of you has to say some other thing that you enjoyed that day that you're thankful for. Whatever it is, whatever it is. Music, a book, dancing, the nature, whatever it is. Replace your grace. We've got to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Everything that we have is a gift from God. And then lastly, for those of you who are here this morning and you wouldn't yet self-identify as a Christian, you wouldn't yet call yourself a follower of the Lord Jesus, here is your response to this, is that you can know this creator personally. You can know this creator personally. Uh, And that's what's on offer. So when Paul picks up uh, this language uh, of God being the creator in the New Testament, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, he can say this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Who did that? Who said that? The creator. Um, Made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. What Paul is really saying is that it is possible through the Lord Jesus to have a personal relationship with this creator. Even though our consciences are rightly troubled by all of the things that we have said and thought and done that were offensive to God, hurt other people and spoiled this world. Despite that being the case, we can come to Jesus, ask for his forgiveness and come to know this God personally. And really that's what we do then as we come to the Lord's table, as we come and share bread and wine together. We remember the cost that was paid for us to personally know the Creator, to have that relationship restored, despite the fact that we've all walked away from Him and lived as if He's not there and doesn't matter. But what we see in this chapter is a wonderful speaking God who invites us to come to know him and to enjoy all that he has given us and supremely to enjoy him forever. Let me pray for us.